Picture this, if you will. You're a primary care physician about to see a 67-year-old female to follow up on the management of her type 2 diabetes mellitus. She's been on metformin for almost a decade, but in the last year, her glucose control has gotten progressively worse, despite increasing her dose at nearly each appointment. And despite increasing her metformin to the maximum dose three months ago, her hemoglobin A1c today is 9%. What's more, she now complains that she's been feeling so thirsty, she feels like she's to drink nonstop, even though, as she says, it makes me pee like a racehorse. You tell her that you'll need to prescribe her a daily injection of insulin to help control her blood glucose, and she looks up in alarm. But I don't want to give myself a shot, she exclaims. And anyway, I thought I didn't have that kind of diabetes. How would you explain the rationale for using insulin in a patient with type 2 diabetes mellitus? And welcome to Audiobricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing topics for endocrinology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this section, you'll be able to 1. Define type 2 diabetes mellitus and describe its epidemiology. 2. Describe how type 2 diabetes presents clinically. 3. Describe the underlying pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes. 4. Outline the laboratory testing that confirms the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes mellitus. And 5. Describe the prevention and management of type 2 diabetes. Part 1. What is type 2 diabetes mellitus? Type 2 diabetes mellitus is a metabolic syndrome that's one of the leading causes of morbidity and mortality in the United States. 7 to 8.5% of U.S. adults have it, and the risk is higher in Hispanic, Black, Native American, and Pacific Islander patient populations. Not a single day goes by in the ER that I don't see a patient with type 2 diabetes. And not only is it super common, it can also lead to severe acute or chronic complications like heart, kidney, and eye disease. Diabetes mellitus is caused by decreased insulin activity in the body, and the main direct consequence is elevated blood glucose levels. Type 2 diabetes is distinct from most endocrine disorders in that it's not initially driven by deficiency of the hormone itself, but rather by the cell's resistance to insulin. Later in the disease course, though, dysfunction of the pancreas causes the circulating insulin levels to decrease as well. Now, when it comes to prevalence, 90% of the cases of diabetes mellitus in the United States are type 2, and nearly all patients diagnosed after age 19 have type 2 diabetes. So, no matter what your practice setting is, chances are that diabetes mellitus is going to be a big part of your life going forward. Part 2. How do patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus present? A typical patient with type 2 diabetes mellitus will be older than age 40 and obese with predominantly abdominal or visceral fat. There's a lot of exceptions to this, however, and children actually now develop type 2 diabetes at a rate that's pretty scary, to be honest. Now, patients with type 1 diabetes mellitus usually develop the disease rapidly and are symptomatic at presentation, but patients with type 2 diabetes are most often diagnosed on routine laboratory screening before symptoms develop. When patients do have symptoms, however, they tend to be pretty similar to the symptoms of hyperglycemia in patients with type 1 diabetes. The patient may complain about increased urinary frequency and increased thirst, known in cool clinician lingo as polyuria and polydipsia. When serum glucose values rise above 270 mg per deciliter, the renal tubules are no longer able to absorb all the glucose from the filtrate, and the glucose escapes out into the urine. This increases the osmolarity of the tubule and draws more water into the urine by osmosis, leading to polyuria. 
Polydipsia is the patient's attempt to keep up with the water loss by drinking lots of fluids when the resulting dehydration increases their thirst drive. Patients may present with polyphagia, or increased appetite, since they're wasting glucose calories that escape into the urine and because their cells can't make efficient use of the serum glucose that they eat. But unlike with type 1, patients with type 2 diabetes have often been gaining weight prior to developing symptoms, since adipose tissue contributes to the insulin resistance that's central to the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes. Quick recall question. What are the three polys of how diabetes mellitus presents? The answer is polyphagia, polyuria, and polydipsia. Part 3. What is the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes mellitus? As I mentioned, the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes begins with insulin resistance, though later in the disease course, it's often accompanied by a deficiency of insulin and an excess of glucagon secretion by the pancreas. And these abnormalities are due to a complex interaction of genetic and environmental factors, most notably obesity, but also sedentary lifestyle, diets high in meat and sugary drinks, smoking, alcohol consumption, and sleep deprivation. But type 2 diabetes has a sort of stigma attached to it. I mean, some people act as though you only get it because it's your fault for being overweight. And that's an unfair mistake to make. A patient's risk of developing type 2 diabetes is greatly increased by having a parent who's been diagnosed with diabetes, and inheritance actually plays a greater role in type 2 than type 1 diabetes. Now onto the pathophysiology. The first and earliest underlying cause for the development of type 2 diabetes is insulin resistance. Insulin, as you probably know, is a hormone produced by the pancreatic beta cells. It's secreted in response to elevated blood glucose after we eat, and acts to tell the body that nutrients are plentiful. One of the most important functions of insulin is to induce liver, muscle, and fat cells to take up glucose from the blood and store the energy as glycogen, or triglycerides, thereby lowering the blood glucose levels. So, in a patient with insulin resistance, Insulin's ability to shift sugar from the blood into the cells is limited, leading to hyperglycemia, even as the pancreas pumps out more insulin to try to regulate the body's increased blood glucose levels. And that begs the question, why do our cells become insensitive to insulin? That's really the money question, right? But it's not a simple answer. Rather, there's a range of contributing factors. One of these is elevated free fatty acids in the blood, which blunts the cell's insulin response. Another is a reduced number of insulin receptors, which can be associated with either genetics or sensitization. In patients with marked truncal obesity, insulin resistance is thought to be provoked by cytokines secreted by adipocytes, like tumor necrosis factor alpha. Some patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus have abnormally low levels of leptin, a hormone that signals us to stop eating when we're full. And finally, believe it or not, stress and sleep deprivation can provoke insulin resistance as well. High levels of cortisol seen in stress and abnormalities in cyclical cortisol secretion caused by sleep deprivation, among other things, can cause insulin resistance, so remember to enjoy some R&R every now and then. In addition to insulin resistance, other factors that may contribute to type 2 diabetes include excessive hepatic glucose production, abnormal fat metabolism, and systemic low-grade inflammation. So, like I said, not a simple answer. Now, metabolic syndrome is an important component of insulin resistance in many patients with type 2 diabetes. It's defined by the presence of any three of the following five traits. One, abdominal obesity, specifically the fat that surrounds the abdominal organs, not just the fat under the surface of the skin. Two, high levels of serum triglycerides. 
Three, low levels of serum high-density lipoprotein cholesterol. Four, hypertension. And five, hyperglycemia. Now, this is a patient demographic that you'll all become extremely familiar with at some point, since metabolic syndrome is not only strongly associated with developing type 2 diabetes, but also cardiovascular disease. But remember, the criteria for obesity and metabolic syndrome isn't about weight or body mass index. Remind me again, what kind of fat defines metabolic syndrome? Abdominal or visceral fat is the kind of fat that's associated with metabolic syndrome and is actually a stronger predictor of type 2 diabetes than any other form of obesity. So that covers insulin resistance, but it's important to remember that although insulin resistance is fundamental to developing type 2 diabetes, most patients would not develop overt disease if they could produce enough insulin to compensate. Especially in patients with long-standing diabetes, the pancreatic beta cells can't increase their insulin levels enough to compensate for the degree of insulin resistance, so hyperglycemia develops. Insulin resistance initially causes beta cells to hypertrophy, with mildly elevated blood glucose levels and increased insulin secretion to compensate. Early on, when beta cell compensation is roughly sufficient to account for the insulin resistance, patients may be classified as pre-diabetic, since at this point, they don't meet diagnostic criteria for type 2 diabetes. But eventually, the ability of the beta cells to compensate will be inadequate, and the serum glucose levels rise into the diabetic range. Later, when beta cell failure occurs, patients will likely require supplemental insulin therapy in addition to their other medications. Patients with type 2 diabetes also demonstrate high levels of the hormone glucagon, which, to put in insultingly simple terms, is like the anti-insulin hormone in that it increases serum glucose in the fasting state. But of the two hormones, insulin trumps glucagon and actually inhibits glucagon secretion. So in type 2 diabetes, the insulin-resistant alpha cells don't get the appropriate degree of inhibition, and so secrete way too much glucagon. Alright, pop quiz time. Here's a softball for you. What is the main underlying problem in the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes? The main problem that leads to type 2 diabetes is insulin resistance. Now onto the complications of type 2 diabetes. Patients with diabetes mellitus are at higher risk for various infections, including urinary infections, abscesses, osteomyelitis, and candida infections, like oral thrush and vulvovaginitis. When poor glycemic control is combined with an acute physiologic stressor, say a heart attack or an infection or even dehydration, a patient can actually get a diabetic emergency that can land them in the intensive care unit. Most often, patients with type 2 diabetes get something called hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, or HHS, and this is a condition characterized by severe elevation in serum glucose in excess of 600 mg per deciliter. This leads to neurologic symptoms from osmotic fluid shift out of the brain and into the hypertonic serum, as well as massive osmotic diuresis that leads to volume depletion. And while HHS is the most common diabetic emergency in type 2 diabetes, late-stage patients with markedly impaired insulin secretion can also get the more infamous syndrome of diabetic ketoacidosis, which is distinct in that the critical insulin deficiency causes widespread generation of ketone bodies and oftentimes severe metabolic acidosis. Now onto the more chronic complications. These are usually more prevalent and severe if the glucose control has been consistently poor and are often due to non-enzymatic glycation of proteins that occurs when serum glucose levels are chronically elevated. 
Glycated proteins provoke inflammation, which leads to atherosclerosis of the large blood vessels and thickening and fragility of the small blood vessels. Complications of large vessel disease, known as macroangiopathic disease, include aortic aneurysm, stroke from carotid artery disease, claudication and limb ischemia from lower extremity atherosclerosis, and most importantly, myocardial infarction from coronary artery disease. Complications of microvascular disease include vision loss from retinopathy, chronic kidney disease from nephropathy, and a whole range of complications from autonomic and peripheral neuropathy, ranging from loss of sensation in the distal extremities to gastroparesis and orthostatic hypotension. The combination of the loss of sensation in the distal extremities and poor wound healing from compromised blood flow makes patients with diabetes extremely prone to the development of foot ulcers. And the increased susceptibility to infection frequently causes this to progress to major soft tissue and bone infections, which may require amputation. Part 4. How do we diagnose type 2 diabetes? A diagnosis of either type 1 or type 2 diabetes mellitus is typically made with one or more blood glucose tests. Normally, a patient's blood glucose is at its lowest when they've been fasting, less than 126 mg per deciliter. Blood glucose spikes briefly after a meal, which should be rapidly corrected to less than 200 mg per deciliter within two hours by the body's production of insulin. Now, the latter is tested using the oral glucose tolerance test, where a patient is given a standardized dose of oral glucose, and the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes can be made if the blood glucose is greater than 200 when measured two hours after the oral glucose load. If a patient has symptoms of diabetes mellitus, remind me what those are again? Polyphagia, polyuria, and polydipsia. Anyway, the diagnosis of diabetes mellitus can also be made if a patient has a blood glucose greater than 200 and has any of those symptoms. Then there's the fasting blood glucose test, which indicates diabetes mellitus above 126 mg per deciliter, but since this only represents a single point in time, the test must be positive on two separate occasions to make the diagnosis. But the gold standard diagnosis nowadays is the hemoglobin A1c. Remember how he said that long-standing elevations in blood glucose lead to spontaneous binding of glucose molecules to proteins in the body? Well, one of those proteins is hemoglobin. And since the lifespan of a red blood cell in the body is approximately 120 days, measuring the percent of hemoglobin that's been non-enzymatically glycated serves as an average of how high the blood glucose has been over the past 120 days. If greater than 6.5% of the hemoglobin has been glycated, then the diagnosis of diabetes mellitus can be made. If a patient has an abnormal value of any of these four tests, then the diagnosis of diabetes mellitus should be high on the differential. Let's stop to review. What are those four tests used to diagnose diabetes mellitus? The four tests are 1. Fasting blood glucose greater than 126 mg per deciliter 2. Oral glucose tolerance test greater than 200 mg per deciliter 3. Random venous blood glucose greater than 200 mg per deciliter with symptoms and 4. Glycated hemoglobin, or HbA1c, greater than 6.5%. Now, depending on the patient's age and other medical comorbidities, type 2 diabetes may immediately be the most likely possibility. Though drug-induced diabetes and diabetes due to other endocrine disorders should be evaluated in the right clinical context. The clinical distinction between type 1 and type 2 diabetes is usually pretty straightforward. 
You know, since your average type 2 patient is older with truncal obesity, and your average type 1 patient presents as a kid having a medical emergency. But like I said, the prevalence of type 2 diabetes is increasing in kids, and sometimes the diagnosis may be uncertain after initial evaluation. In these cases, two different lab tests can help distinguish between the two, and those are the C-peptide levels and pancreatic autoantibodies. So for background, insulin is synthesized and packaged into vesicles as a prohormone known as proinsulin, and instead of finishing the job inside the cells themselves, those lazy beta cells just stuff a bunch of enzymes into those vesicles as well to activate the proinsulin. So when the beta cells release their insulin vesicles in response to increasing blood glucose, what actually gets ejected into the bloodstream is a combination of activated insulin and a garbage protein that got chopped off proinsulin in order to activate it. That garbage protein is called C-peptide. So why do we care about C-peptide? Well, because it's a proxy for the level of insulin that a patient is actually making in their beta cells. Even if a patient is taking exogenous insulin, as in from a syringe, C-peptide levels will reflect the amount of insulin that their body is actually making itself, since injectable insulin doesn't come with any garbage C-peptide. A patient with type 2 diabetes mellitus still makes insulin in their beta cells and will have C-peptide in their bloodstream, whereas a patient with type 1 diabetes will have either low or absent C-peptide because they make very little insulin, and eventually not at all, once all their beta cells are destroyed. Speaking of, because type 1 is an autoimmune destruction of the pancreatic beta cells, you can often measure detectable levels of autoantibodies directed at the endocrine pancreas. Some examples include anti-glutamic acid decarboxylase antibodies and anti-islet cell cytoplasmic autoantibodies. These antibodies are present in greater than 85% of individuals with type 1 diabetes, but only 5-10% to of patients with type 2. Part 5 how can we prevent and manage type 2 diabetes mellitus? Type 1 diabetes, unfortunately, can neither be prevented nor stopped once the disease begins, but type 2 can. Once the disease is established, however, treatment is very different in the two conditions, but the goal is the same. Decrease serum glucose while avoiding hypoglycemia and preventing both the acute and chronic complications of diabetes mellitus. Now, certain patients have a high risk for developing type 2 diabetes and are called pre-diabetic. And it's important to identify these patients early to prevent progression to actual type 2 diabetes. Although they don't yet meet diagnostic criteria, they can be identified by one or more of the following lab results. 1. Hemoglobin A1c between 5.7 and 6.4%. 2. Impaired fasting glucose with a level between 100 and 125 milligrams per deciliter. And three, impaired glucose tolerance, where the oral glucose tolerance test yields a level between 140 and 199 milligrams per deciliter. Basically, these are slightly lower diagnostic thresholds for three of the four tests used to diagnose actual diabetes. These screening tests are performed annually in all adults between 40 and 70 years old, and even younger if a patient is overweight and has at least one of the following risk factors, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, a positive family history of diabetes, polycystic ovary syndrome, or a prior history of gestational diabetes. Now, because these patients have a higher likelihood of progressing to diabetes, they should immediately begin non-pharmacologic methods of glycemic control, like weight loss and exercise. Additionally, because even pre-diabetes is a cardiovascular risk factor, these patients should be provided excellent control of their serum lipids and their blood pressure, and be treated for other cardiovascular risk factors. 
Now, the management of type 2 diabetes could be an entire course on its own, but for now, let's just go through a brief overview of the key management principles. First, lifestyle modifications. If a patient is obese, weight loss can lower the blood glucose and reduce the need for medication. Exercise not only helps with weight loss, it also lowers blood glucose independent of insulin signaling. Diets for patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus should consist primarily of complex carbohydrates and fiber, but reduced fat and simple refined sugars. And remember, while it's easy to say these things, you know it's going to be a lot harder to put into practice. I mean, these methods actually work, but your patient needs to be educated, motivated, and have the information reinforced regularly, given all the needed changes in lifestyle. This is one area where you can actually really benefit your patient by connecting with them and serving as both their coach and their cheerleader. But while lifestyle changes should always be encouraged, medication will be required for most patients with diabetes mellitus to control their serum glucose. These drugs lower glucose levels through a variety of mechanisms, including decreased insulin resistance, increased insulin release, increased urinary glucose excretion, and decreased GI carbohydrate absorption. Some of them are taken by mouth, while others are injectable drugs. The range of drugs is quite honestly exhausting, and each of them has their own risks and benefits. But the two that are most important to cover are metformin and insulin. Metformin is usually the first drug prescribed to patients with type 2 diabetes because of its long and well-documented history of safety and efficacy. It combines a low incidence of potentially life-threatening hypoglycemia with the added benefits of promoting weight loss and improving a patient's lipid profile. Insulin is important to mention since it's not the first drug people think of for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, but it's increasingly recognized that the later stages of type 2 diabetes are characterized by decreased insulin production in the beta cells, so insulin may be required to normalize the blood glucose in those cases. But while it's the mainstay of treatment in type 1 diabetes, it should be avoided in type 2 patients unless the hyperglycemia is refractory to at least one other medication or if it's severe and or symptomatic. Not only does insulin come with a risk of life-threatening hypoglycemia, but the fact that it promotes weight gain means that in patients with type 2 diabetes, it can actually worsen the insulin resistance in the long term. Because diabetes mellitus is a major cardiovascular risk factor, patients with diabetes mellitus need to have other risk factors aggressively controlled. The blood pressure target for most diabetic patients is under 140 over 90 millimeters mercury, or 130 over 80 in the setting of known cardiovascular disease. An angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor, or ACE inhibitor, is often used for the treatment given its beneficial effects on the heart and the kidneys, and should always be used if a patient has either diabetic nephropathy or retinopathy. Statins should be given to treat hyperlipidemia for any diabetic patient with cardiovascular disease and all diabetic patients over 40 years old. Home monitoring of blood glucose levels is necessary for patients taking insulin, but most of the other type 2 diabetic patients will not usually need to do this. Home monitoring is advisable when oral antihyperglycemic drugs are changed or if the patient is prone to hypoglycemic episodes. But for the clinician managing diabetes, the hemoglobin A1c level is the single most important test for monitoring glucose control. It should be checked every three months, with a target goal of less than 7.0% in most patients. Additionally, all patients should be routinely monitored for the chronic complications of diabetes given their wide range and potential severity. This includes hypertension and hyperlipidemia, like we alluded to. Additionally, annual ophthalmology exams are recommended to evaluate for signs of diabetic retinopathy. 
Urine albumin should be measured annually, as this is an early sign of diabetic nephropathy. If urine albumin exceeds 30 milligrams over 24 hours, or 30 milligrams of albumin per gram of creatinine on a spot urine specimen, then the patient should be started on an ACE inhibitor. Finally, annual in-office exams for foot sensation using pinprick, vibratory, and microfilament testing should be done to evaluate for early signs of diabetic neuropathy. Additionally, patients' feet should be examined regularly for ulcers, since these can actually become quite severe before they're even noticed by the patient. And that's a wrap. That's all I got for you today regarding diabetes mellitus, so let's recap to see what's stuck. First, can you broadly define type 2 diabetes mellitus? Type 2 diabetes mellitus is a common metabolic disease characterized by persistent hyperglycemia. It's initially caused by insulin resistance, but progressively results in inadequate insulin secretion as well. Second, can you list one acute complication and two chronic complications of type 2 diabetes mellitus? Acute complications of diabetes mellitus include multiple different infections, as well as the diabetic emergency known as hyperosmolar hyperglycemic syndrome, or, less frequently, diabetic ketoacidosis. Chronic complications can be broadly characterized as macrovascular, like heart attacks and strokes, and microvascular, like retinopathy, nephropathy, and neuropathy. Finally, the common presentation of symptomatic hyperglycemia is polyphagia, polyuria, and polydipsia, though this presentation is a lot more common in patients with type 1 diabetes. Usually, patients with type 2 are detected on routine lab screening before they're symptomatic. 3. Can you name the four diagnostic criteria for diabetes mellitus? The four diagnostic criteria are 1. Two fasting serum glucose measurements greater than 126 2. Serum glucose greater than 200 two hours after an oral glucose load 3. Random glucose greater than 200 with symptoms of hyperglycemia And the gold standard, 4. A hemoglobin A1c greater than 6.5% Now, these criteria are the same for type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and usually the patient demographic will tell you which one you're dealing with. If it's still unclear, the C-peptide and the autoantibody tests can help you distinguish between the two. Finally, can you broadly describe the management of type 2 diabetes mellitus in terms of glucose control, management of cardiovascular risk, and monitoring for complications? Blood glucose should be controlled with lifestyle changes and pharmacotherapy to target a hemoglobin A1c less than 7%. Hypertension and hyperlipidemia should be aggressively managed in diabetic patients, and ACE inhibitors should be prioritized because of their protective effects on the heart and the kidneys. And finally, patients should be monitored yearly for signs of microvascular disease, like retinopathy, nephropathy, and peripheral neuropathy, as well as the ulcers that may result. Now, Armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to that patient from the beginning of the episode. A 67-year-old patient with type 2 diabetes refractory to maximal doses of metformin is reluctant to start treatment with insulin and doesn't understand why it would be used to treat type 2 diabetes. How would you explain the rationale for your treatment plan and address your patient's concerns? 
Being the clever physician scientist that you are, your mind immediately jumps to all the statistics, practice guidelines, and educational podcasts that help justify your decision. But you pause for a moment and try to hear what your patient's really saying. Hey, you say, sitting down beside her, you're always so good with your medications, and you've been sticking your own finger for the glucometer every day for the past year. What's really bothering you? She looks defiant for a moment. I just don't feel like I should have to. I've been taking my medications, eating clean, walking every day. Then her lip trembles a bit. What am I doing wrong? You reassure your patient that her glucose control is not her fault, that it's actually a fairly common part of the disease course of type 2 diabetes. You're correct that type 2 diabetes begins with insulin resistance, you acknowledge. But as time goes on, many patients with type 2 diabetes also have problems making insulin within their own bodies. We often try to avoid insulin early on, but the biggest mistake would be to keep avoiding it, even when we know you need it. She nods in understanding, and you educate her regarding insulin administration, blood glucose monitoring, and staying alert for signs of hypoglycemia. And I see you've lost 10 pounds this year. Looks like you're doing a good job with your diet and exercise, you say, grinning. Just don't be surprised if you gain some of that back once you're on the insulin. Just keep doing exactly what you're doing. And that's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full Bricks experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends. 